Today in our study, the book of Revelation, we come to chapter 7. This chapter serves as a pause between chapters 6 and 8, between the sixth seal, the first six, and the final, the seventh seal, which we will see in chapter 8. The first six seals describe the witnesses, the judgments that come against those who have broken the covenant. The language and the images are not new. We find them in other places in which God announces judgment against his people. The closest connection being made is to that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. As we saw last week, the first four seals uh, have often been called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which will bring conquest, violence, and famine on the earth. The fifth seal describes the souls of the martyrs crying out and wondering when God will make things right. Chapter 6 ends with the question, For the great day of their wrath, that is of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, has come and who can stand? This question comes after the opening of the sixth seal, uh, that is uh, in witness against those who have broken the covenant, John describes what we call last week decreation, that is, creation in reverse. Just as the salvation of God's people is described and spoken of in terms of creation, so also God's judgments are spoken of in terms of decreation or the collapse of the universe. What we find here in chapter 7 are reassurances that the wrath of the Lamb will not separate his people from his protective care. There are two parts here to chapter 7, two visions, twin visions as some have called it. They answer the question, who can stand in the day of their wrath? The first vision is found in verses 1 through 8, and follow along if you would as I read. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After seeing the first six seals opened by the Lamb, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. And at this point, I think the reader should get the message. It should be quite clear that there is some significance to the number four. And what does four mean? What does it symbolize? Well, it is used in the Old Testament extensively 
in connection with the earth, but specifically the earth and God's people on the earth. So, for example, the Garden of Eden had four rivers that flowed from it that watered the whole earth. Uh, we read in Ezekiel 7 of the four corners of the land, that is, of the promised land. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Here it is referring to the land of Israel. By the way, it has been suggested, you can think about it, that uh, the whole idea of four corners actually matches the four corners of the altar in the sacrificial system. That all of creation, if you wish, belongs to God. It is a place where we worship God. Then we saw last week the four judgments upon God's people. From Ezekiel again. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments. Sword and famine and wild beast and plague. In Jeremiah. I will send four kinds of destroyers against them, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to drag away, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. In this context, it's worth noting that in Leviticus 26, uh, God speaks of, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will judge you. And four times in that chapter, God tells Israel, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. And seven being the number of completeness or fullness. Four being tied to the earth or the land, the promised land. So when we see in Revelation 7 the idea of four angels and four corners of the earth, that they're holding back the four ends to prevent them from blowing on the land, the sea, and the trees, the thought that should come to the mind of the reader is that of divine judgment. And judgment against those who are called to be his people. It's not simply any divine judgment. It is against those who have broken the covenant. Those who belong to the covenant, but who have broken the terms of the covenant. And parenthetically, just a word about the four corners of the earth. In the past, and I'm sure even today, some people have used this, uh, in the, uh, this idea in the wrong way, but also have used it against scripture. Uh, some have argued that the earth is flat, and thus... The Bible describes it as having four corners. Others have argued, we'll see there, the Bible is hopefully, hopelessly archaic, um, unscientific. Everyone knows there aren't four corners. The earth isn't flat, and therefore the Bible is not to be trusted in other matters. The language is symbolic and should be taken that way. It should not be taken literally. And, and, and I would just consider, or ask those to consider, uh, those who are so proud of modern science and uh, somewhat arrogant about it, um, isn't it amazing that we still speak of sunrise and sunset? When in fact, science tells us the sun doesn't move, the earth does. And yet we speak as though the sun moves up and then the sun goes down. The four corners of the earth is meant figuratively. Then a word about the angels holding back the four winds from blowing on the land, or on the sea, or on any tree. It's interesting, land, sea, Trees, the trees seem somewhat out of place, but I think they represent living things. Because one could argue if the wind blows on the sea, you get waves, but that's it. And on the, on the land, you might take off the topsoil, but it is when a deadly wind blows on living things that it, in fact, can kill. And we certainly have our share of this with the Santa Ana winds that come in and just seem to fry things, 
even in today's weather with the, with the heat, um, it will in fact affect living things. Now, we shouldn't think it's strange, by the way, that the four angels are commanded to hold back the four winds. As we've seen in other studies we've done, the universe is governed by God at all times. God did not create a self-sustaining universe which is left to operate on its own in terms of natural law. The universe is not a giant mechanism like a clock that God wound up and, and now simply follows inevitable natural law. Ours is not a mechanistic universe. Our world is actively governed by God at all times. And we saw this in the last four chapters of Job, which God asked Job, you know, do you know about these things? Are you in control of reality? No, God is in control. The world is inescapably personal. There is no phenomenon or event in creation which is independent from God. And therefore, I don't think the angels are that this is necessarily to be taken literally, but I think the point is very clear that God is in control of this reality. God governs his universe. And when he judges, it is not just some accident or natural disaster that happens as though he had nothing to do with it. The four winds, I think, that are spoken of here go back to what we saw in the third and the fourth seals. Uh, and remember, I told you that the seals are not chronological, that uh, they're rather speaking of divine judgment, but not necessarily in that particular order. An angel comes up from the east, and it tells them not to allow the winds to do their worst until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. This means that what John is seeing here actually happens before the opening of the seals. So, again, it's not chronological, but John has a point to make. God, through John, does, and I think it is very important for us to see. The seal that is put on the people of God is the name of Christ and of God, and we will see this when we get to chapter 14. With him, we read, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. But at this point, we're not given that information. We are simply told that they are sealed with a seal on their foreheads. Now, this should remind us of something we read earlier, uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, uh, in which Jesus says that to those who overcome, he would write the name of God on them. Later in the book of Revelation, we will get to that which most people are familiar with, I think with Revelation, the mark of the beast, the number 666. Um, I would just point out for you to consider at this point, we'll get to it later, that when God puts something on people, it is called a seal. When Satan puts something on someone, it is called a mark. And I think the difference between the seal and the mark is significant. The seal is given as a gracious act by God. Whereas the mark is forced on people. He forced everyone to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. We read in chapter 13. The seal signifies security under the protective authority of God. The mark makes no such guarantee. And so... What God gives is a seal. He seals his people. What Satan gives is a mark. But we shouldn't think 
when we come to the matter of the seal, that somehow it symbolizes or indicates a promise that they will be spared physical suffering. The seal is not to say, if you have the seal, nothing is going to happen to you. We've already seen that the call to Christ sometimes leads to martyrdom. To the church in Smyrna, be faithful even to the point of death. The fifth seal was about the souls of the martyrs being under the altar and crying out to God, how long till you make things right? And then God responding to them, wait a little while longer. Not everyone that's supposed to be martyred has been martyred yet. It's really quite striking. To wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed has been completed. Now, the idea of the seal on the forehead is very, very much from the Old Testament. The high priest was to wear a turban, but in front of the turban was to be a gold plate on his forehead. Moses is given directions, and listen if you would. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it a seal. Holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord on, uh, to it. To attach it to the turban, it is to be in front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they, God's people, will be acceptable to the Lord. Therefore, the seal on the forehead of Aaron symbolized a restored relationship with God. The children of Israel were instructed uh, to bind God's law on their foreheads and on their hands. Deuteronomy 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Thus, the thing that is put on the forehead represent, represented or symbolized God's authority and sovereignty over their thoughts, their foreheads, their hands, over their actions. In the writings of Ezekiel, chapter 9, Ezekiel writes of a vision in which there are six men who come into Jerusalem and then a seventh man shows up and the seventh man is given instruction. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over, over all the detestable things that are done in the land. It is those who are unhappy about the spiritual state of Jerusalem. Put a seal on their foreheads. And then to the sixth, he says, okay, everyone who doesn't have the seal, kill them. Old men, old women, children, everybody, show no mercy. So the seal represents a right relationship with God. It represents an acknowledging of his authority. It also acknowledges his protection. I think the same thing is true here, that the lamb seal shows that he will protect his people. But you might say, wait a minute, Damon, but you said... If you get the seal, it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't suffer. Absolutely. The protection that the seal of the Lamb is from, is from being deceived. You see, we're all going to die. Okay? Seal or no seal, you're going to die. I mean, that is what is inevitable for us as human beings. And so why people would think that that is the greatest protection a person could have? Oh, to be protected from suffering and from death. No. 
the greatest protection that could be offered to God's people is that they would not be deceived by the beast. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about those days? At that time, Jesus said, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. And why, why can the elect not be deceived? Why can God's people not be deceived? Is it because they are brilliant? They have high IQs that they know so much? No, it is because God has graciously sealed them. He has put his seal upon his people. And again, this doesn't mean that they will not experience suffering. But they will be protected from deception. I think it goes without saying, but I will say it anyway, that the seal is not literal. We should not expect to be looking at each other, looking for a seal to be on our foreheads. In the same way that true circumcision is circumcision of the heart, so the seal that is given uh, is something that cannot be seen. And and Paul's language here, I think, is, is very helpful in Ephesians. Having believed, he writes to the Ephesians, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Later in Ephesians 4, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Thus the seal is the promised Holy Spirit. But as John writes here in Revelation 7, who is it that is to receive the seal? John says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel who are these people and what can this all mean this this section has been the fuel of much speculation and uh, we could spend our entire time just trying to undo all the wrong ideas that have arisen I won't do that I think the number is symbolic I think that the 444 that we saw earlier has prepared us for that I mean, if we've gotten this far in the book of Revelation and we haven't recognized that numbers are symbolic, certainly the beginning of chapter 7 sort of gives us a clue with the four angels and the four corners and the four winds. 144,000 is symbolic. It is 12 times 12, that's 144. It is 10 times 10 times 10, or 1,000. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, God's people. 10 and any of its multiples symbolize many. Thus what we have is 12,000 taken from each of the 12 tribes. It gives us 144,000. Now, does John mean that literally there would be 12,000 from each of these tribes? No, that's not what he is saying. Then what what can he mean by this? Let me give you some things that I think will help us. First of all, the list of the tribes of Israel here does not match any list that we find anywhere in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we are the 12 tribes of Israel are given in different orders at different times. At least 20 different orders are found in the Old Testament. This does not match any of them. Uh, some are excluded. Dan and Ephraim are not included. Joseph and his son Manasseh are included. And that's very unusual because usually Ephraim and Manasseh replace Joseph. Um, Levi is mentioned here. 
uh, he's not mentioned in the 12 tribes who received an inheritance in the land, uh, the promised land, because the Lord is Levi's inheritance. As to the order and why some are excluded, I will not speculate. People who know a lot more than I do have, and I will leave it to them. I'm content, and I think it is enough for us to know today, that this list is different from any other list. And therefore, this must mean something. That what John presents us with here is something different than what we have seen in the past. The second thing is, looking ahead to chapter 14, the 144,000 are identified as those who have been redeemed from the earth, those who have kept themselves pure, those who have been purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. That is, they are God's redeemed people. Thirdly, also in chapter 14, they are identified as those who did not defile themselves with women. And again, I don't think this is intended to be literal, but rather to speak of the spiritual purity of the church. You might remember that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that he was very worried, he was very concerned about them, he was writing this letter, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so the 144,000 male virgins that are seen here are symbolic of the purity that the church is to have. The 144,000 represent God's people, as it was meant to be, as God's people were meant to be, with symmetry, with perfection, with completeness, and God has put a seal on them. I don't think that this refers only to Israel. I think rather it refers to the people of God who are Israel. The Lord willing, in the reading either next week or the following week in Romans chapter 2, Emily will read to us about what a true Jew is. This is not someone who is circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart. Paul wrote wrote to the Galatians, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. 144,000 represent the people of God. That's the first vision. Now we come to the second vision, beginning in verse number 9. And follow along, if you would, as I read. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
as we have noted in our study in the book of Revelation, generally speaking, John hears and then he sees. And here he heard the number of those who were sealed and now he sees a great multitude. I think what we see here is wonderful truths about the nature of the church, the reality of God's one church. You see, from one standpoint, from one viewpoint, God's people are definitely numbered. None of them are missing. All of them will be saved. And so we have an exact number, 144,000. On the other hand, from another point of view, the church is innumerable, a great multitude that no one can number. So on the one hand, we want to have a sense that the church is a definite, God knows who is the church. But if we're not careful, we might shrink the church down to something that is manageable. And so the second vision sort of explodes that into something. No one, no one knows how many there are in the church. God knows, but no one can count how many are in the body of Christ. From one standpoint, the church is the true Israel of God, the new Israel of God, the sons of Jacob gathered into all their tribes, full and complete. But from another standpoint, the church is the whole world, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. But in this passage, there is something else besides this, this dual sense of the church on the one hand and on the other. It is location. Because the 144,000 represent the faithful church on earth who have been sealed, protected from deception, from apostasy, and from God's wrath. The great multitude are in heaven. And they represent those who have emerged triumphant from tribulation. Not by escaping it, but through faithful death. They were put to death because of the testimony of God. These have known hunger. They have known thirst. Exposure. They have known tears. But in John's vision, they are now in the presence of God. So let's look at John's second vision here. He looks and he sees a great multitude. They are standing before the throne in front of the Lamb of God, which represents the presence of God. They are wearing white robes. They're holding palm branches in their hands and they are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The white robes we have seen earlier in the letter to the church in Sardis. It represents justification, salvation, righteousness. We see in verse number 14 that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's a certain paradoxical aspect here, a certain irony. Uh, you put a white robe in red blood, it's not going to come out white. But it is because of the work of Christ and his blood that we now have white robes and we are freed from our sins. The palm branches might remind us of different things. The Feast of Tabernacles, in which every year Israel was supposed to move out of the house and set up little tents or booths and make them out of palm branches to remind them of what God did, how faithful he was for 40 years in the wilderness. The events of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, 
uh, after Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled the temple, the Maccabees are able to defeat him and cleanse the temple. And the Jews celebrated, among with other things, palm branches. But I think without question, when we read this, we immediately think of Palm Sunday. When Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people got to palm branches and they went out to meet him. And they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what Hosanna means? It means save. And so, what they sing in heaven, salvation, which comes from the root word save, is the same message. It is the same song. Salvation belongs to our God. There's something else going on here that for us, we live so many centuries later that, that we might miss. In the Roman Empire, Caesar was seen as a savior. We think that's very strange because, you know, separation of church and state and you know, political figures over here, religious leaders over here. Uh, not so in the Roman Empire. Mark Antony wrote of Julius Caesar, his only work was to save where anyone needed to be saved. Sounds very strange to us. Because we've co-opted the word save. Nobody else can use it. But no, the Romans did. Uh, Seneca praised Nero. We will see more about Nero in this book. He referred to him as the savior of the world. So when John says that salvation belongs to our God, this is political treason. This is going against the established political order. This is saying, no, salvation does not belong to Caesar. It belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And when these, this, these people, this innumerable multitude do this, the angels who are surrounding the throne and surrounding the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they respond. And they respond first by saying, Amen, or so be it. They agree with what the great multitude has said. And then they give a sevenfold doxology, praising God. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so as we have seen in previous chapters, in chapters 4 and 5, the presence of God is a place of worship. And in many ways, what we do when we meet on Sundays is a foretaste of what we will be doing in the presence of God eternally, worshiping him. Well, while this is all going on, one of the 24 elders talks to John and says, who are these people? All these people in white robes and with, with the palm branches and saying salvation belongs to our God. Who are these people? And John, in essence, by saying you know, is saying, I don't know. I don't know who these are. You know, please tell me who these people are. So the elder tells him. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Of course, this gets people's attention. They've heard about the tribulation, the great tribulation. But I would remind you of several things. First of all, John is writing about what must soon take place. It does take place less than five years after he's written this book. He is writing to the churches in Asia to prepare them. Jesus has already said that the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth is coming. 
Jesus has told the church in Smyrna that they would suffer persecution, perhaps even to the point of death. And Jesus, in Matthew 24, uh, spoke of the events connected with the destruction of the temple. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. The church was experiencing persecution, as John writes this, but a flood is about to be let loose under Nero, and the church will experience persecution as never before. So they will experience tribulation and trial. But that's not the end of the story, because now they are in the presence of God. Not passively, you might note, but actively. They are serving God day and night. I've had more than one person tell me that they, in fact, are not looking forward to heaven. Um, they want to go to heaven because, you know, don't want to go to hell. I mean, that's, they want to do that. But they're, they're afraid that they're going to be bored in heaven. As though they'll be sitting on clouds strumming harps through all eternity. No, the picture that is given is that we will be serving God day and night. Now that they are in the presence of God, they will not suffer anymore. And again, in the great paradox, the Lamb will become their shepherd. The Lamb of God will take care of them. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. a rather amazing chapter, but what's going on here and what is being said? In Revelation chapter 7, God, through John, is answering the question at the end of chapter 6, who is able to stand in the day of God's wrath? Who can stand in the day of God's wrath? In the day of decreation, when the four horsemen of the apocalypse come, who will be able to stand? God's people, by his grace, will be able to stand. God's people who are numbered and sealed against deception. God's people who are a great multitude. No man can number them. Those who have come through the great tribulation. Not by escaping the horror and the pain of it, but by going through it and suffering and dying. Someone might say, but uh, hold on a minute, it doesn't sound like they were able to stand against God's wrath. I mean, if, if they're dead, it doesn't sound like they did a very good job of surviving God's wrath. But wait, where are they now? They are now in the presence of God, in the presence of Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The Lamb shepherds them, God comforts them. The wrath of God that, has going, that is going to be released shortly after John writes this against those who have broken the covenant. Yes, some of God's people are going to die. Some are going to be put to death as a result of persecution. And by the way, if, if you look at this passage, not an insignificant number of Christians are going to die. A great multitude that cannot be numbered. Thousands upon thousands of our brothers and sisters were going to be put to death for their faith. 
but they stood in the day of God's wrath because now they are in the presence of God. One is reminded of the ten plagues that came on Egypt and how did God's people stand, particularly in the last plague, the tenth plague, by the blood of the Lamb. God's wrath is poured out, but they survived. God's wrath is poured out, but the church survives by God's grace. Graciously, he seals them, not allowing them to be deceived and going over to the beast. And graciously, they are in his presence after their deaths where they serve him. In this light, I find what Paul writes in Romans 8 all the more amazing. It's a passage I think we're all familiar with. But in the light of Revelation 7, I think it, it reverberates. Listen, if you would, as I read this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. These are the people John's writing about who are going to suffer persecution. No, Paul writes, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who will be able to stand in the day of their wrath? God's people by His grace. God's people whom He has numbered. He knows exactly how many people He has. But God's people who are a great number that we cannot count. By God's grace, nothing can separate them from the love of God. Not the wrath of God. Nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. That's why we have Revelation 7. Because we might get a little bit nervous after reading chapter 6 and reading about all these things that are coming. And we might think, well, what's going to happen to the Christians? There are some who would tell you that the Christians are gone at this point. They're not. John is writing about things that happened in the first century. And the seal is not to protect them from death. We are going to die. And many of our brothers and sisters, thousands upon thousands of them, have been put to death because of their faith. But nothing will separate them from Christ's love. Nothing. Not even the wrath of God. Because Christ has sealed them he has protected them. They are his. We are his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are very much children of our age. We want as much as possible not to suffer. We've been fortunate in this country not for the most part, to suffer persecution, certainly not to be put to death for our faith. We may fail to realize that there's something far more important than being protected from suffering, and that is to be protected 
from being deceived, from being led away from the faith, from leaving the one who is the overcomer and going over to the other side. I thank you that you know how many people you have. They are numbered just as the hairs on our heads are numbered. You know us. At the same time, it is a great number that we cannot know. You have people here on earth. You have people who are in your presence. Though we are apart, we worship, we serve you. Here on earth, there in your presence. I thank you for Revelation chapter 7 and how it answers the question who will be able to stand in the day of their wrath. It tells us that by your grace and by your grace only we are sealed, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb and you will care for us. I thank you for this time that we could spend together today in worshiping you. I ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? Benediction is a doxology from Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.